This is Seba, the Southern Fried Witch, and this is episode 43 of season 2. And before we get going today, I wanted to draw y'all's attention to something important. So here we go, witches. Registration is now open for SoMoThatCon, That Witch Life Podcast's second virtual conference on living as a witch in today's world. SoMoThatCon is happening October 15th and 16th. And y'all, it's going to be phenomenal. Join from anywhere in the world for incredible workshops, a bunch of badass raffle prizes, rituals led by Kanani Soleil, Courtney Weaver, and Hillary Whitmore, and more. They will have a live Q&A with Ruth Connell, aka Rowena, y'all, from the show Supernatural. Seriously, they get all the best folks. Other presenters include listener favorites Heather Augusta, Taverly Anglin, Phoenix Coffin Williams, Russia Crean, Storm Fairy Wolf, Lisa Jade, Cha Wan Koo, Orla Minxi Costello, Tomas Prower, Papa Hector Salva, and even Hillary and Courtney. If you can't join the event live, y'all don't worry. Everything is going to be recorded and sent to all registrants after the event. Y'all run over and get your ticket for SoMoke.com today at ThatWitchLife.com and hurry because prices are going to go up on September 26th. Be sure to grab your ticket today and support these witches because these virtual events are just critical in today's world. And I sure do appreciate the work they're doing. Okay, let's move on. And today, y'all, I want to finish reading some of these questions. Some of these I lost in a spam folder and just found them. And y'all have to forgive me. Remember, I'm working on 60 over here (laughs) and I will lose things. But these really mean a lot to me. These are all the beginner questions and they showcase a lot of what I think folks are trying to figure out for themselves. I don't know how much of this one I'm going to share and it's a, a long one, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff here. So we'll see how far we'll go. Miss Susie writes in and says, Well, first she warns me to settle into my favorite glass of wine and honey, you don't have to worry. I got it right here. And there was a surprise at the end of this one that I did not expect. But let's just work with it because I think it's worth talking about. All right. She says, First, I want to say your podcast was not what I was expecting when I first started listening. I expected more of the how-to things, but I love listening to your stories, and your voice is so soothing. Oh, honey, I don't know if my partner would say that, but that's okay. I've noticed listening to you makes my anxiety calm a bit. It's like you say, Southerners just slow down a bit. It helps me to slow down and be able to think. Anyway, at first, I was a little disappointed in not hearing you give us how-to instructions. I'm so sorry, baby. But the more I listen, I realize I'm actually learning. You just sneak the lessons in there on us like a little sneak attack, LOL. 
tricking us into learning a life lesson of some sort by talking to us about your chickens or garden or whatnot. You caught me. I love that, you sneaky little witch. (laughs) But I digress. Thank you for your lessons. I just wouldn't get them anywhere else. They are important to me, and I'm holding them close to my heart. I don't know how many times you've made me cry while listening. Well, shit, that is not my intention, but, you know, it does happen when I'm moving along myself, and we're all being authentic, and that means sometimes it's a mess, right, babe? Anyway, where am I on the letter? I have so much I want to say to you, but I'm not sure I'll be able to get them all out. I believe people should know what they mean to each other. And while I don't know you personally, I've come to know the parts of you that you share and you've carved out a space in my heart. It's as if you're a cousin now. I say cousin just because I'm trying to be real. I can't say sister. You know nothing about me except that I hold your lessons near and dear to me. And then we're just going to skip ahead and get to the question. And here it is. My first question, and maybe the only one, seeing as how this email is quite long enough already, do you have suggestions on how to overcome my fear of my gifts so I can use them? I could tell you more about my gifts, but mainly I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I keep hearing, if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't mess with it. However, no one has given me instructions, if you will, to avoid the things that need avoiding. I hope that makes sense from a tired brain. I'm going to skip her gifts because they feel private. So, I want to grow and flourish in my magic and use my gifts. There was one day that I told my mom about a dream. You say mom here, honey. You're not from around here. We'll keep moving. Where was I? Oh, that's right. You told your mom about a dream that had come true. And she said, shame on you for not using the gifts God gave you. She's a Christian in the traditional sense of the word. However, she believes God has given people gifts. I, however, don't know that I can call myself a Christian. I believe in God, do not have a particular pantheon, do not work with any deities, and I believe the Bible is a great storybook with lessons on how to be a good person. Well, I mean, to some extent you are correct. Uh, There's a lot of horror stories in there too, though. Let's not forget the Old Testament. Moving on, I'm just not sure God spoke the words to men to write. It's a good tool to control people. I find it hard to get behind religion where religion has caused so much death, war, pain, and suffering than anything else ever has. Okay, so Susie, two things. First of all, I was a teacher for a very long time in person at a state university. And I always had trouble in my annual reviews. Um, I like to call them my anal reviews, and they sucked. But the ones that they would come and visit the course and sit in, that's where I shone. Because it had everything to do with what you said. I was a rebellious child. Um, I was both a runaway and kicked out, depends on the day, and had to live on the streets when I was a teenager. And it was this wonderful juvenile detention facility teacher who helped me realize that, well, what he said was every time I threw that piece of paper at him that he told me to write, that if I didn't write down my thoughts and if I didn't talk about it, nobody would ever hear me or the reason for my anger or my pain. 
And the way he got to me, I don't think I've ever told that part of the story. You know, they make you go downstairs and you have to sit in like a, a classroom. I mean, after all, a 15-year-old or 14-year-old who's in a juvenile detention facility still has to get education. I was extraordinarily traumatized as a child and I was very, very enraged. And so every time he would, you know, say this is the assignment, write a paragraph or whatever. I would wad up my piece of paper and and throw it at him at his desk, and I was getting real damn fine at hitting him in the head with it. And I'm very lucky that they didn't put me in solitary for that. I realize that this story sounds like it was just the other day, but it was like 1982. It was a very long time ago. And most teachers would have just sent me away. They would have um, disciplined me in some manner or fashion. But this one, I reckon he was like, you know, in his early 20s and probably just getting his internship in, bless him. He wrote it down on a piece of paper. That's what he did. Everything he wanted to say to me, he wrote down on a piece of paper. And then he'd wad it up and throw it back at me. And I let him do that a couple or two or three times before I finally just wanted to know what it said. And in a very roundabout and very sneaky way, he got to me. He got to me. Some of us, and I've noticed a lot of witches in particular, have a lot of guard up when it comes to learning or being taught to. You know, taught down to. Not taught. Taught. And... The only way I was ever going to learn anything was if I found it out myself, if it were a grand discovery of my own. I just didn't take anybody at their word. I guess some of y'all might find that to be a fault. I have learned it can kind of be a strength. Depends, and we all need balance. But yeah, I naturally am trying to teach something because I'm always trying to teach myself. So you did catch me at my game. And that makes you a sneaky little witch, too, don't it? (laughs) I like you already, baby. All right, that second thing. Um, I didn't share some of the particulars here because they are just so private. I'm not gonna on the air, but, you know, half of everything I've learned, I've learned from experience. And sometimes that means that I have skinned my knees and hurt myself and, you know, got real bruised up by it. And the other half of the time that I've learned something, it had to do with researching and reading. And now while most witches would probably tell you to go get a bunch of witch books, and I reckon there'd be about 20 I'd tell you to go get because they're good, I would also add in that something that could very much help you is to look at studies and research. One of the little rabbit holes I often go down is anthropology. Their studies really tell us a lot about cultures and tell us a lot about experiences that other witches have had, whether or not they call themselves that. So I would consider heavy research. I think I also would suggest to do things in tiny increments. This isn't so much to keep you out of danger, although it could help in that um, endeavor. But it's also so that you can learn through the way your feet are following this path. In tiny little increments, after doing something smaller, for instance, you can write down everything, honey. You can write down the moon, where your head was at, where you are in the wheel of the year, what response you got out of it, how you felt about it, what you thought you could do better. 
these sorts of things are a self-reflective device. When I first started to uh, see things that were going to happen, it would terrify me and I would run from them. And what that would do was keep me from being prepared for them. And so what I started to do is write down something. If I dreamed about it or had a bit of a prediction about it, call that a vision, call that whatever you want. I wrote it down. I wrote down when it happened and everything I could remember about it. It almost became a sensory experience because when I looked back and would read about it after it had happened, I could match a lot of things to it. If I smelled smoke, if I could taste rain in the air in that vision or dream, whatever it might be, of course, the colors and the sights and the sounds, and that was all recorded. And it helped me quite a bit to have faith in myself when it would come to be. I know it sounds mundane and it doesn't sound like a lot of bells and whistles, but it's a way of self-recording your own journey and it'll give you a lot of faith in your own self and maybe even help you to not be so afraid anymore of your natural gifts. Now I'm going to write more back to you, especially about this other stuff that's very private. I wouldn't want that to be out on the air, so I'm going to write back to you, but you can trust yourself more. If you have the closest we can ever get to proof that what we saw coming was real. I think I've told y'all that story. I hate to tell a story twice, but one of the things I saw was um, I was laying down at night. It was early this past spring. So if you've run through all the episodes, you've already heard it. And I won't go through all the details, but as I was laying down, you know, it wasn't a dream. It was as I was laying my head on the pillow. It was almost as if someone had slipped a Polaroid in front of my mind's eye. I could see it so clearly, and it was a tiny little white chicken because they were baby chicks with her legs sprawled behind her, and she was assuredly passed away. And of course, I did that thing that humans do, that witches even do. Uh, I told myself that I was being silly, that I must be extraordinarily tired and stressed reminded myself that those chickens were in the house and had a nice mesh cage over them and that all was well and safe and there was nothing that could have possibly happened to them and forced myself to lay back down and fall asleep. And when I woke up the next day and opened up that back room, a bedroom, by the way, not, you know, a porch or anything, uh, she was laying there in that exact position and she had passed, um, I had apparently interrupted a very long, about six foot rat snake, and he'd already taken down six of her kin, but altogether seven died. So I started to listen a lot more. I'd almost forgotten that I could do that. I'd almost forgotten to trust myself, you know? It'd been a long time since I'd had a vision like that. I think I'd closed off my visions because they were so shocking sometimes. And I just wanted to do my work. I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to revere my great mother. I wanted to be a great grandma and a farmer and a writer. And I wanted to close down some of those gifts. As you well know, they can become um, cumbersome. But alas, my dear, they don't go completely away. When holding them in and ignoring them and pretending that they're not there, that can become, well, that can become death of the spirit. 
One of my visions just broke right free one night and scared the living shit out of me (laughs) and brought me back to where I needed to be. So let's start small. I mean, it's already happening. I have that paragraph here of what has happened. Let's start writing it down, you know? You don't have to actively do anything about it right away. Maybe just write it down. Don't forget to write down the season and the moon and the time, but also what was going on. You know, were you sleeping? Were you sitting up? The whole nine yards, anything you can think of. And then if it's just too much stress and you are too afraid, close that book. And now we have it recorded for a time you feel safe to go back through. All right. Okay. I'm going to write back to you about the rest. And I see that you wrote here, love you lot chicken and right back at you, baby. I'm never going to get through all these listener stories because I didn't think y'all were sending them. And and then I found them everywhere. Y'all, I found them in a folder called social on Gmail. I found them in spam. I found them everywhere. Now go ahead and giggle at the fact that I can barely figure out social media. Go ahead now while I pour this glass of wine. All right. The next one was on September 1st, and it says, Hello from Sweetwater, New Jersey. The second I saw that, I was just back in time. It starts, Hey, Seba, I'd like to start this email by thanking you for your commitment to the SFW podcast. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. You know, when I'm feeling tired, honey, When I'm feeling like it doesn't matter and why am I doing this and it takes up two days of my week, I get something like this in the email and all of a sudden, don't mind me tearing up a little bit, I have the energy to keep going. So, you are more than damn welcome, hun. Anyway, when I'm feeling frazzled, scatterbrained, or just downright unsure about the big picture in life, your light really pulls me back to center and for that I'm eternally grateful to you. I hope you know the degree of impact your show has made to your listeners. Um, same. Back at you. So I thought you would find it funny that people in parts of New Jersey refer to where I'm from as North Alabama. I know you said you lived here for a stint and do not recall that time fondly. Hold up. That is not necessarily true. Talk to it in a minute. I only hope that one day, if ever back in the area... You take a trip through Sweetwater and the Pine Barrens via the rivers. It is absolute magic and is sure to change your opinion as to why this place is called the Garden State. I'm going to talk to this in a little bit. Move it on. I'm a generational witch. I identify as a ceremonial hedge witch and I am truly blessed to come from a family of women who all read tarot and sneak in the pagan charms and influences into traditional Christian holidays. (laughs) We are definitely a family that appreciates the little magic. I sometimes am sad that they're not as open about their beliefs in the craft as if my grandmother, only going to church on All Souls Day, didn't give it away already. They do not say as much, but I know that they know of the magic that lives around and between us and feel it every day. There's also been hushed and quiet discussions of the family book of shadows that is currently missing in action and musings of, quote, whatever happened to that really terrible neighbor we put in a jar. (laughs) 
end of quote. I realized my mother, aunts, grandmother, and even great-grandmother didn't live with the level of acceptance as there is today. Maybe up in the north, honey. I guess my question to you is, do you think there is anything I can do that would allow them to be more comfortable with their magic and not be so afraid that they hide it? Honey, you did not tell me whether or not I could say your name on the air, and I so want to because it is so damn cool. So I'm not gonna. Worst thing in the world I think a witch can do to another witch is out them, so I'm not gonna do it. So let's start at the start. I'm going to have to go listen to every damn podcast, and I never do that. (laughs) I never listen to my own podcast, to find out what I said that made that come across. You know, on Facebook, I'm a member of our, no, no, I'm not a member. I think I follow, like, or whatever, New Jersey Pagans. So shout out to y'all. I'm sure they wonder what the hell I'm doing in there. (laughs) Or I've seen my name go by or if I've liked something. And the reason is I hold New Jersey very fondly in my heart. It was, to be true, one of the hardest times of my entire life. But so was North Alabama. I mean, you know, it was the childhood, not the place, babe. And the daddy of my heart, I guess most of y'all would call that a stepfather, was from there and married my Alabama mother, and we went up there when I was um, 13. You know, (laughs) some really horrible things happened up there, but some really wonderful things did too. I remember the flowers. I remember it all. I remember how green that area was that I lived in. It was a tiny little place called Haddon Township. I went to that school um, in... I believe seventh grade, and it's very hard to find my records, but I believe I started eighth grade there, and of course then, you know, was kicked out to the road on a wintry night and didn't go back to school there. But I remember, (laughs) I remember getting off the bus at the end of our long road, and there was this place called Leonetti's Pizza Parlor, and uh, again, like 82, you know maybe 81. I'm not great at the math. I just know how long ago it was. And if I had snuck enough, 75 cents, if I had snuck 75 cents, because I wasn't given ever, ever an allowance of any kind. But if I had found that money, three quarters, I could get what's called a slice and a pop. Now, I was very young and had a very thick Alabama accent didn't know what the hell I was ordering. <laughs> and so I would go in there and my little coin shaking in my hand and say, I need a piece of pizza, <laughs> a piece of it, and a Coke. Well, down here in the deep south, there are places down here where the next question would be, what flavor Coke? Because Coke, especially for my generation, meant it meant pop. <laughs> it meant a carbonated uh, beverage. And then you would go on to say, you know, a Sprite or a Pepsi or a Fanta or whatever. And they cleared me up. And they cleared me up. It took a long time to say I want a slice and a pop. And it was 75 cents. New Jersey was the very first place I ever tried pot. I don't know what y'all call it these days. We called it that. I remember it making my tongue numb. Y'all must have had some strong shit. 
I don't smoke it anymore. I don't really like the way it makes me feel, but I damn still believe that it should be legal. Let's see, what else? It was the only dance I ever got to go to, the seventh grade dance. The only time that anything was normal for me. And I met a boy there. He was Italian. He was from South Philadelphia. I was living in one of those horrible places that they put people like me when nobody wants them. And I had an excursion one night to South Philly, and there was this new thing called an arcade, at least new to me. And they had this big machine, and on the front it said Pac-Man. It was the first and only time I've ever played a game like that because I realized after playing it that I have anxiety disorder and cannot handle little ghosties trying to eat me. I think they were ghosts. Was it Pac-Man? Y'all go ahead and make fun of me. I don't know. But it stressed me out. But there was this cute boy. Black hair and olive skin. And uh, he was standing behind me and let me have a quarter, which back then was a big deal. And I got to play a lot more and then finally walked away. And um, he was, the, I think, the second love of my life. You know, puppy love kind of stuff. Being a rascal from South Philly. And I mean being a very Italian, old school South Philian. He taught me a lot. He taught me how to ride the L train. He taught me about hot pretzels. And I bet nobody down here in the South knows what the hell I'm talking about. Dipped in mustard. And taught me how Italians have all these, well, at least, you know, these old school Italians had all these um, courses to their meals. My God, I would fill up on the first one at his house and there would be, you know, seven more. But it was so much fun. They loved my accent. They loved it. And one day he got my name tattooed on his forearm and bless it, he he spelled it wrong. But (laughs) unless he's passed away, there's extraordinarily Italian South Philly guy somewhere aging, I'm sure. Maybe working on 60 with my name misspelled on his arm. No, I don't hate those memories, honey. My dad would take me to uh, Jersey Shore and we would go to Penn's Landing a lot too. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. My mama would get mad at me because I would wander and go talk to the artist and she would accuse me of flirting with him when I was really just uh, enthralled with this other culture, you know. And in fact, about a week ago, I was sitting on the porch talking to my oldest son and my partner. And I said, you know, if I could go anywhere in the world, I think I'd like to go back to Jersey to visit, you know. Couldn't live there, honey. Y'all know it hurts. But I would like to go up there and visit because my dad, he would take me these places. He called them excursions and we would have all these wonderful times Of course, I, you know, it was before I was kicked out, not necessarily by him. And it was, I think at the time, I hated every last bit of it, I thought, you know, (laughs) until it got fun. So when I think of New Jersey, well, first of all, I think of Springsteen. I think of Thunder Road. I, I remember my hair long and wearing a bandana on my head to keep my hair out of my eyes and the wildness of my youth. Um, I did end up back down here by the age of 17 and a half. (laughs) 
I remember that very particularly. So I was only there for about four, maybe four and a half years. But thank you for taking me down memory lane, baby, because there's magic there. And if I bring that past the the good stuff like I just did, if I bring that forward and let it sit here with me, this aging woman with a white salt and pepper hair, wrinkles, and if I bring it forth like this, it heals a lot of the other stuff. Sort of one of my little witchcraft hacks. So, what can you do about your New Jersey family? Well, I'll be honest with you, honey. Not much of a damn thing. (laughs) I'm sorry. Everybody has the right to experience their magic in the way that they want to. I do, however, have a very important little tip for you. Record it all. If they're not okay with you recording them, you know, on uh, vocals, which I really think would be awesome, telling stories and remembering that way, get as much of that story as you can and run go write it all down. <laughs> You're going to want those stories. When I was a younger girl, I had my grandma begin to tell me stories. I have book after book of nothing but these stories, all about her childhood. Everything that ever happened to her that she thought was magical. We had lots of discussions about it. I would bring her a problem and say, for instance, I think my grandpa came and sat on the end of my bed and was trying to get me to come talk to you. And she would start to cry and say, yep, that was him. And she always used to say, well, she changed it up a lot. She would say things like, I don't believe in ghosts and they damn straight know it. I don't think she said damn, I think she just said darn. And she had another way of saying that too. But her point was that, you know, she didn't want to be bothered by ghosts very much. She'd gotten old enough that it it shook her a little to be bothered. But she did know that they were there. And then she would go into stories of my ancestors and I would write everything down. And I knew she was going to be one. Just like you know that yours are going to be ancestors too. And I wanted every last thing, honey. It certainly did take me a very long time to watch that movie, Coco. And I finally did, and it was last night. And the whole time, I'm just sitting there, you know, in tears. (laughs) Because I've always done this. Now, in the Christian side of my family, there was just so much refusal of the dead. You know, after my dad died that I told you about, my New Jersey dad, when he died, all the pictures were commanded to be taken away from where they were sitting by the bedside or whatever. Everything he had was dispensed immediately, uh, given away, sold even, just as fast as it could get gone. And I felt desperate, like on a ship where everything is disappearing And I would reach out and grab things and hide them in my suitcases before they got thrown away, given away, sold. So I have the strangest little box for a police patch here, you know, a lottery ticket there. Because he did win the lottery in uh, New Jersey back in the 80s. His pen, little things, because it was all disappearing in front of my eyes. And I hate to have to quote this, but it's always been my contention as well, that what is remembered lives. 
I gathered all the stories I could from him while he was alive. Every single time I would go down there and visit, he would haul me off to the garage. He was a heavy smoker and a beer drinker and a damn fine cop, you know, one of the last good policemen. And he just wanted to sit there and tell me stories. And I ate them alive, just like I did with my grandmother. I knew one day these would be my treasures, these stories. And when he died and so much of him disappeared around me, against my will, by the way, and I do harbor some resentment about it, I refused. When I met my partner and we got married, I insisted he know all of the stories. My sons knew all of his stories, and they also knew my grandmother's stories, every last one of them. I will show them one of his little mementos, something he loved, and say, this he loved. I have a recipe book from my grandma, and I've told them it's short, it's simple, but this is her handwriting. This is the last of her. It has to stay in the family. So in a lot of ways, when I'm sitting there watching Coco last night and sobbing like a baby, I suddenly understood that it wasn't just the photos, you know, outside of the movie. It wasn't just the photos that I needed to honor to keep these people alive in my heart, but also for the generations that came next. You know, he wasn't blood, but oh, that did not matter. He loved me. He called me daughter, and I loved him. What mattered even more than the photos were the stories. They were more rich and more powerful and more able to bring him back to me and vice versa. All of these 20 years since he passed away. And the same for my grandma. So you have this opportunity to get all of the stories. And if they won't go any farther than that one little slip up here and there, Maybe ask them other things. Take whatever you can. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, that is the true heritage. That is your inheritance as a witch. Write them down. Keep them safe. Hold them close. You may never get your family to do more than talk to you. And that's okay. But what you can do is make sure you're immersing yourself in their stories. Because they're still here. Don't miss it. All right. I have one more. And this letter is actually very important to me. I feel honored that I can share this with you. This one is from Angel from the Science Witch Podcast. They wrote in, and here it is. To answer your question for the podcast, I always felt I was a witch. I was always very emotionally attached to trees and saving the planet. When I was 14, I saw the craft. Well, that's at least a good 50% of us, hun. Let's see. And got into witchcraft, but was growing up in Mississippi. And it was dangerous to be a witch, and I was bullied, assaulted, and character assassinated by my peers to the point I turned away from all religion And from the time I was 17 until 27, I was a staunch atheist. Then around the time of my Saturn return, I had a profound experience on the Hopi Reservation. I was going to be teaching 50 middle school kids the next day, 
and with staying and housing they provide for visiting teachers. I was having a very painful cycle and had nowhere I could get pain reliever. I sat up in my bed in pain, worried I wouldn't be able to sleep. I said out loud, please help me go to sleep so I can teach these kids. And immediately I fell asleep and an older Hopi woman came to me and put a piece of corn on my tongue and all my pain went away. I was able to teach the middle school students from the Hopi and Navajo Nation the next day and that experience opened me up to the spirit world and brought me back to witchcraft. That is profound, my friend. As you know, I have lots of Cherokee in my history and in my family, and I had a very similar experience, but it was in childbirth with my last baby. I had a vision um, where he was holding a little tiny kernel of corn in his hand. When I opened it, that was what was laying there. It was a white eagle corn. I love white eagle corn. It, it makes the best tamales. It makes the best cornbread, but it's um this beautiful almost indigo blue and then there's a little white eagle at the top of the kernel from the side and I am sitting here right now trying to decide whether or not to tell y'all the truth about that. There's so much going on out there in the world right now about the freedom to choose and um you know when you're telling a story raw you can't really focus on what is politically correct. So let me go ahead and throw you a trigger warning. Trigger warning The next thing I talk about is going to be about the consideration of an abortion. Okay? Y'all have this little bit of time. All right. When I got pregnant with my last baby, I was in a horrible marriage. He had drugged me up to Sand Mountain. I had a house uh, that my oldest son's father had left to me, but he wanted me to rent it out, and um, I had two other children. At the time, they were nine and three. He wanted me to rent it out, and he wanted me to move up on the mountain, and so I did so. And around Christmas, he left me for his secretary. I was so big pregnant. (laughs) I was um, so broken. But to back it up, six months or so before, when I found out I was pregnant, he had already tried to leave me once. The problem for me was that, you know, we had talked about having a baby. I was almost 30. I knew that if I was going to have one, I wanted to go ahead. Not that older women can't have them. I just wanted to go on and do it if I was going to do it. And I had come to the decision that I did want to do it. And he was very excited about that. So I purposely attempted to get pregnant with his child with my then husband, who then immediately tried to leave me the first time on Mother's Day. (laughs) Yeah. On Mother's Day, my God. Oh, some assholes out there. I tell you what, there are some real pieces of work, aren't they? Anyway, it was a long time ago, and honestly, I wouldn't take it all back. This is how I end up with a grandchild, so it's okay. And I want y'all to hear me that I'm extraordinarily pro-choice. I have had an abortion I don't feel comfortable going into the ins and outs of why. Believe me, there were significant reasons. But when I called my family, when he left me just a little bit pregnant, (laughs) yeah, maybe I was just a little bit pregnant, 
um, they all insisted I get an abortion or they weren't going to talk to me anymore. It's almost like a cult-like experience in my family. But they all did. My mother, my sisters, my sister-in-law, my brother, all of them, one by one by one, the phone would ring. And I was told that we need to talk. Because, you know, I'd given up so much to marry this person and no longer had an income source and had given up my home that I owned, but there were people living in it and there was a contract and he had walked, he had left and their contention was that I needed to get an abortion immediately. And I think that's just as much of a bullshit statement as the opposite Say, if I had decided I needed to do that and they were guilting me into keeping it, do you see what I'm saying? Because if we're going to get to the heart of choice, then we need to remember that resides in the mother's heart and her mind and her body. And neither pressure to pick a side is okay with me. And so, because of all that pressure, I did consider it. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, they had some points here, although they were being very um, manipulative and forceful about their opinions. They had some points. I mean, also, they didn't offer me any support. <laughs> you know, there wasn't going to be any support. I couldn't move in with anyone and no one was sending money. But I had a lot of time to think about it. Yes, I had a, a nine-year-old child and I had a three-year-old uh, son and no support from their father. So there was no way out really for me. The thing was, and this is a private decision for me, and I want to be very clear about that. The thing was, is that I'd asked for this child. No, I still would have forgiven myself. And I'm sure the world, well, most of the world, possibly y'all would have forgiven me if I had changed my mind. Because of the extraneous circumstances, I was under horrible pressure suddenly. And, you know, it just looked very bleak. But I had asked for the child. And he had come. And I knew it would be, you know, my last. And so, with literally no support. And even the wayward husband um, calling me to tell me that he also wanted me to get an abortion. Against all of it, I chose, I chose what I chose and for my own reasons. And I think at the time, and this is interesting, I think at the time that choice meant more to me because I had it, you know, the pregnancy meant more to me because I had that choice. I knew that I could have ended it and decided not to. For my own personal reasons, I had autonomy over my body. And so that time, I went forward. And every woman should have that moment. They should have that choice. Oh, I don't mean they should have the moment I went through, my God. But they should have that choice for their own flesh and their own experience. Anyway, flashback forward and to make a longer story longer, I ended up on a mountain on a waterbed. (laughs) Oh, y'all. 100%. Uh, abandoned, if you will, with these children and a baby in my belly. We ended up having to drink the water out of the waterbed because the water got cut off and we were starving. I mean, it was a very hard time. 
Very difficult indeed. And why not? I was so near ending it all. And, you know, just broken and exhausted. And by the way, that night was Christmas Eve. And that evening, I'd packed those two kids in the car. It was a a pink Camaro (laughs) with uh, spoilers on the back a long time ago, far away. And I had found from piggy banks enough money to get these kids some ornaments for the tree at a dollar store. On top of this mountain, Pisgah Mountain, Sand Mountain, I believe, but it was in Pisgah. And I was driving them to get these ornaments, trying to hold on to life, trying to believe, trying to dig my talons into the bone marrow of whatever was left of living. I was trying, and I was almost there, and it started to snow. And hey, listener from New Jersey, do you know what played on that? In that forgotten, horrible mountain, in that horrible, forgotten town. It was Santa Claus is Coming to Town by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And it was playing on a country radio station. Girl, sorry. I could feel my daddy. I could feel his strength. And I knew I wasn't alone. I knew that he was standing beside my decision. He would have just, he would have stood by whatever I chose. This was a very hard one. But my God, he loved Christmas. <laughs> and he wasn't going to let me be alone that night. So that night, with all those pines getting covered in snow... Bruce Springsteen sang out across the most redneck, racist, KKK-ridden mountaintop I've ever known to tell me I wasn't alone. And as hard as that night was, it has become a memory that I hold dear, very close to my heart. And when I went to sleep that night, I dreamed of a little boy that was holding something really tight in his hand. And when I pulled his fingers back, there was a tiny grain of corn, white eagle. That was my ancestors. They were there to say something very important to me. You've made your decision. We stand beside it. We stand beside you and you are not alone. And honey, I ran back to magic like a woman on fire. I too had walked away. I too suddenly knew the rest of my life was going to be this witch path. Now, I want y'all to also hear me that at the ripe old age of 44, I did have to make a different decision. I had my reasons. They're private. And as much as I've tried to talk about it on the air, I can't. It hitches up in my throat. I can't. I believe our ancestors do respect our choices. They can see what we can see in our witch heart. And I believe that they are a wealth of support and knowledge. I used to write it all down every time I would have a visit from someone or a beautiful memory. I don't do that anymore. I just pick up this microphone and I just tell y'all. So you've all become my memory bat children and I love you all. Thank you for listening. I have a few shout outs to do and I hope y'all stay for those because they're important. These are the people who are supporting Patreon 
supporting this podcast, and without them, I could not continue. And so today, I'd like to thank Catherine, Crystal, Rob, and Cass. I do believe I've already thanked Yoti and Sandra and Shelly, but just to be very clear, your support, whether it's $2 or 50 I value every last bit of that. I understand what it means. It means that you trust me and that you really want to be involved in this project. I say your names because I'm thankful, but I also want to honor you. You've become part of this. You've become part of my world, part of the stories. And so I love y'all. All right, kiddos, I'm out of here. I know it was a little bit long. I probably didn't answer to everything I should have. <laughs> Y'all need to call me on it when I miss something. So write to me and say, hey, you didn't say enough about X, Y, Z. And I'll try to get on it. In the interim, I've got rabbits to feed. And I'm making one hell of a soup tonight. We have chestnut mushrooms. And they're so rare. They're gourmet. They're absolutely wonderful. Popping off everywhere. Y'all, I'm about to sink those into some cream and some chicken broth and a little bit of brandy. And we're going to have the best soup ever tonight. So that's what I'm about to do. I'll talk to y'all next week. Love you like chicken. Blessed be. Y'all have been listening to the Southern Fried Witch Podcast. Come back around next week for a little bit more magic from the Deep South.